Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Robert M. Price, the Bible geek. The word geek denotes an obsessed hobbyist, and I am happy to accept that definition. I feel, I find the Bible absorbingly fascinating. I do not regard it as an authoritative or inspired revelation from God. I used to, but ironically, it was the avid study of the Bible that led me to give up my religious devotion to it. I had to decide between my desire to understand the Bible and the religious faith that created my interest in it in the first place. So now I love the Bible as the classicist loves the Iliad and the Odyssey. In my view, there's nothing more pious than trying to understand the text for its own sake. Whether you are a believer or a skeptic, I'm inviting you to join me as we try to make sense of a sometimes puzzling book. Uh, this is from our buddy Luther, not the reformer. He's not that old. Okay, um, he says, I recently picked up a used copy of an interesting looking book called Gnosticism, Judaism, and Egyptian Christianity by Berger A. Pearson, <clears throat> published in 1990 by Fortress Press, though mostly comprising articles previously published. And my questions generally involve it. Well, lucky for me, I read it so long ago. Uh, uh, Pearson argues in his first chapter or article, Friedlander revisited Alexandrian Judaism and Gnostic origins that some of the ideas of Moritz Friedlander, 1844 through 1919, um, some of the ideas he had about pre-Christian Judaic origins for Gnosticism have been long dismissed, but, quote, although much of the detail of Friedlander's argument is open to question. He has been vindicated in his basic contention that Gnosticism is a pre-Christian phenomenon that developed on Christian soil. Um, uh, end of quote. Before I go on, I just got to repeat something I say all the time, so you're probably sick of it by now, but I regard the uh, general view that's, I think, been uh, the scholarly mainstream consensus and therefore highly questionable uh, since the um, the big conference on Gnosticism at Messina in Italy in the mid-60s, namely that, oh, no, 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 uh, Gnosticism developed as a Christian heresy. It was not a previously existing religion that uh, then um, got Christianized uh, 
loaned certain ideas to Christianity, etc., etc. I, I regard that as an apologetics dodge, just like um, the uh, the absurd attempt to say that uh, that um, there were no dying and rising God myths before uh, Christianity, uh, and and by implication, the the mystery religions who soon thereafter had them um, must have borrowed the whole idea from Christianity. I, that seems to me to really incredibly fly in the face of the evidence. It's just theologically motivated, which wouldn't mean it was wrong, but I, I don't, it's so weak, I, I can't think of any other uh, reason to think so. Uh, and th- this is what I think is going on there. So I'm glad Pearson uh, sees through that. Okay, um, back to Luther. He says, I have to go back to something that has stuck in my craw for years now, and I've asked a few questions about it before, related to Dr. Bart Ehrman saying in his discussion with you in Milwaukee in 2016 that while it was a popular idea while you two were in school that Gnosticism predated Christianity, and I've read things by Bultmann, F.F. Bruce, and John Knox that confirm it was believed by serious scholars. um, Back to what Luther says, Bart said, quote, nobody believes it anymore, unquote. Yet here is a book from 1990 in which the author says that dating Gnosticism prior to Christianity had fallen out of style but deserved to be reconsidered. My first question is, do you think Dr. Ehrman is holding on to something he saw as decided history, but has since been re-challenged, maybe as early as 1990? He is, after all, quite a conservative biblical scholar in many ways. His beliefs almost always seem to be in line with, uh, with the traditional majority opinion. Or has the apparent consensus against early dating of Gnostic origins either arisen since that time or withstood Pearson's apparent attempts to overturn it? Uh, well, let me answer that one. I, I do get the impression, and of course, since I am not a mind reader, uh, that's all it can be, unless he were to confess this in, in some autobiographical writing. But I, I get the impression that he left evangelicalism uh, after a number of attempts to harmonize traditional conservative Protestant theology with um, certain critical conclusions that that at first disturbed him, like the uh, differences between the synoptics, comparing them in a gospel harmony. And you see that, wait a minute, it's it's obvious that the evangelists were making changes and edits here. If it matters, these things can't be literally and completely quotes from the historical Jesus. But, of course, he didn't move all that far from there. Uh, he's much like the older British uh, form critics who said, oh, a lot of this stuff goes back to Jesus, maybe even most of it, but that doesn't deny that it got paraphrased uh, or edited here and there. And I, I think uh, Bart takes that approach. Well, I think that's true on other consensus conser- con- uh, conservative 
left-leaning opinions that, above all things, uh, Bart wants to be um, a supporter of the the consensus, the scholarly magisterium, uh, and uh, that the certain views uh, just cannot uh, be entertained seriously, or you're exiled from the Society of Biblical Literature uh, plausibility structure. That's my impression, anyway, and that's all it is, not not dogmatic. Um, but I think that uh, it's probably never been a an absolute uniform agreement among scholars. I, I think of the analogy of the Jesus Seminar. Uh, we would vote on uh, various gospel items and on the big question, uh, was the historical Jesus more of a revolutionary, an apocalyptic prophet, or a wise sage? And the, um, the, they'd vote on it and the the majority of fellows of the seminar would say, well, yeah, he, he was a contemporary sage with cynic leanings, not a revolutionist, not an end of the world nut. Well, that didn't mean every individual fellow of the seminar agreed with that. I know some of them didn't, but um, enough did that you could say this is the consensus of the Jesus seminar. I think it's the same way in the whole field. Uh, you can't, uh, there's not really an explicit orthodoxy, but, but I remember Paul Verhoeven, the famous film director, who uh, is has advanced academic degrees. He was a a semi-regular attender of the Jesus Seminar. And he was working on uh, the script for a Jesus movie in which Jesus would be portrayed as a revolutionist. And every time he gave a, a, a status report on this project, which I don't think ever came to anything, but looked like it was gonna, the, uh, the fellows would try to persuade him and say, look, we, we don't think he was a, uh, a revolutionist, etc. But, uh, Paul had his view and he was going with it. So, um, uh, let's see. Uh, and I'm sure it's, it's that way with, uh, you know, you'll find scholars with different opinions all over the place, even if there is a consensus among the huge number of New Testament scholars. Um, so I doubt if Pearson is really a voice crying in the wilderness. Uh, he's, he's very respected and, uh, and I think his views are too. Because a, a whole lot of, uh, New Testament critics are not dogmatists. I mean, they may have a favorite view. They may defend it as a kind of a hobby horse. Who knows? Right? I mean, I can't blame anybody for that either because really that's another way of saying that you're just trying to push the paradigm you're working with as far as you can in order to see what it will and won't make sense of. And maybe you'll choose another one. So, I, you know, I, this is the process all new and maverick views go through. They really have to run the gauntlet of uh, collegial opinion. I understand that. Uh, and um, as for me being a mythicist, I know that's, you know, considered a marginal, even crazy view. Uh, but uh, that's what they used to say about Old Testament minimalism, and now it rules the day in academia. I suspect that it'll that before too long, and by that I mean a couple of decades or something, you might have New Testament minimalism as the common view. But who knows? I won't live to see it anyway, I'm sure. Okay, um, 
Bluther again, I believe you personally place Gnosticism roots further back in time and with origins to the East. Is that correct, or am I just confused again? If so, what leads you to that opinion as opposed to possible Jewish origins? Well, of course, if uh, it is of Jewish origin, that would fit in quite well with uh, a pre-Christian date uh, for Gnosticism's birth, uh, because um, all you would need to say is that uh, in a time of syncretism, where people kind of picked one from column A and one from column B, as many do today, uh, and you might be a Hellenistic Jew like Philo. And there were many different views there. There were courageous thinkers. And uh, that uh, all you would have to imagine is Jewish philosophers like Philo uh, puzzling over the problem of evil and trying to come up with some schema uh, that would explain how you got from a good God to a bad world. And Gnosticism in one form or another, that's really all you would need, it seems like. Some scholar, don't remember who, I think I heard this from David Scholler, but he was quoting somebody. He said, all you would really need to explain Gnosticism is the first few chapters of Genesis and a heck of an imagination. Yeah, there's some truth to that. Um, it may be the greatest debt to uh to, to anything by Gnosticism would be Plato. Uh, and um, and if you had the Jewish background and knew your scripture well, you could do kind of what Philo did. I mean, he he figured that Plato had studied the, the Torah of Moses. Of course, it's just the other way around. But uh, he was trying to put together two systems, that each of which made sense to him. Uh, and he, he didn't come out with Gnosticism, but it's quite similar in some ways, also similar to much later Jewish Kabbalah. Uh, but you can easily see how the, it predated Christianity. Uh, another possibility that I think C.K. Barrett suggested in a book called Jesus and Judaism, I think, I think that's right, used to have a copy of it, can't find it now. Uh, he said that he thought that it was uh, a reaction, the, the formation of Jewish Gnosticism was a reaction to the failure of Jewish apocalyptic. People getting all uh, excited about, oh, the Messiah's coming, he's going to kick the butts of the Romans, and oh, oops, <laughs> I guess we jumped the gun. Well, this time with Mark Koch, but it's the real thing, oops, darn. Um, and uh, we know uh, rabbis in the second century we're saying uh, to, to Jews generally, look, haven't we learned our lesson? Uh, let's let God uh, run things on his own timetable. It's not for us to know. Let's just wait and see. We can trust God, can't we? And uh, yeah, that could be as well. Uh, uh, what's um, Hi, Maccabee uh, said he thought that Gnosticism evolved out of 
uh, God-fearing Gentiles. That is, you know, they didn't want to go the whole way and convert and be circumcised and all that, but they really admired Judaism as uh, ethical monotheism and would study the scriptures in the Greek translation. They'd go to synagogue and be welcomed there. Uh, and, uh, and so, so Maccabee thought that a group of these guys who were philosophically inclined as well uh, found that the um, that that they just couldn't buy the Old Testament business, and uh, that it just didn't explain enough, and uh, so they they satirized it. I mean, in a way, you could say they didn't want to have completely wasted their time studying it. So now they were lampooning it by saying, well, uh, the creator God, uh, he was sort of a bungler. And uh, get a load of this stuff. He's he's lying to the people he created. What the heck uh, could be? I kind of doubt that. But uh, I have to admit, it would uh, make sense of the kind of satirical approach taken. Um Okay, um, but you you also, uh, as people have done, uh, could point out links with Zoroastrianism, which dominated Judaism, in my opinion, after the exile when uh, the priests and, and others came back from uh, living in the Babylonian slash Persian Empire, uh, and uh, that they learned Zoroastrianism and it was kind of imposed on them, as I believe, uh, by the the Persian state, uh, and uh, and the result was Pharisaic and Essene type Judaism, uh, very different from the Old Testament religion of Israel, and uh, but that fits in, and we know there were controversies over. Uh, the possible relation between them. Some thought that Zoroastrianism was poison to Judaism. Others thought, oh, no, no, this was a real revelation, too. Who says God could speak only to Jews? Uh, and uh, so uh, it, it, we know it heavily influenced Judaism. And Gnosticism, which has these links to Zoroastrianism and the Bible, uh, could easily have been one of the ways in which uh, you had this mutation, uh, this melding of, of the different religions, no, not surprising to me at all. And as um, Walter Schmidholz pointed out once, the fact that you have revelation apocalypses in Nag Hammadi credited to various Old Testament characters, Seth, Shem, Adam, and so forth, would, would you attribute this stuff to them if you were first and foremost a Christian? Uh, wouldn't you think it would be like another bunch of Nag Hammadi texts where it is just Christian from the beginning and uh, they have Jesus return from heaven and teach on earth for some weeks or years and and of course he's supposed to be teaching not secret Gnostic doctrine. Well, the, wouldn't you think you would do that uh, if you were simply an early Christian who had mystical Gnostic leanings? Why would you start using as your authorities these obscure and half-legendary Old Testament figures? Well, there are ways of explaining that that are plausible. You could just say that's a metaphor for saying that it really is ancient stuff. 
you may be hearing about it for the first time now, but it, it really does go way back. Maybe that's the point. Uh, but I tend to think Schmidtholz was right and that it really is a fossil of uh, the Jewish roots, among others, of, uh, of Gnosticism. And that that would be, well, Bultmann thought this, as you pointed out. And that makes an awful lot of sense. It really seems like a, a redemption a redemption scenario in the New Testament looks an awful lot like one in Gnosticism, but it fits even better in Gnosticism. Uh, like the thing with Jesus dying to ransom somebody. Uh, what is, uh, and the statements of Jesus about how nobody knows the Father but me and anybody I'm willing to reveal him to. What? Uh, you're saying Isaiah and Moses didn't know the Father? Well, no, because the Father of Jesus is not the Old Testament God. In other words, some of these things make more sense to me as originating in Gnosticism, and they're, they become more mystifying once they become part of Christianity, and things get reinterpreted or misinterpreted, or they're, they're just dropped there uh, with, without uh, making as much sense as they once did. So I think the, the evidence implies a pre-Christian origin. Uh, I am uh, not propounding this as a dogma, nor am I saying, oh, um, smart uh, scholars will only accept this. No, of course not. Um, oh, let's see, let's see. Um, are you familiar with Pearson's work at all? Uh, I googled him and I see that he was a highly qualified scholar, though a believer, having been trained in a liberal Lutheran seminary with PhDs from Harvard and serving on the editorial board of the Institute for Antiquity and Christianity of Claremont Gradual School with the likes of Burton Mack, uh, James M. Robinson, Karen King, and Marvin Meyer. I'm curious whether you know his work and your opinion of it. Well, in, in just a general way, I've read various um, essays by him, and he sounds pretty convincing to me in most of it. Uh, and uh, he has more traditional views about Gnosticism than, uh, let's say, Karen King. Uh, who is one of those who say, well, there wasn't really any one Gnosticism and, and tries to uh, dissolve the whole idea. I think that's going too far. Uh, Burton Mack, um, he uh, thought that there were several roots to Christianity, various Jesus movements and Christ cults, some of which were more like the mystery religions, some like Gnosticism, um, and so forth. I, I would think uh, that, uh, like he, he thought the things came together to form Christianity, and that would imply, uh, my, my, at least my inference is that that would mean Gnosticism was already around and was one of the ingredients. Uh, James Robinson sure thought so. Uh, he was a disciple of Bultmann, and. Uh, Oh, I'm not quite sure where Marvin Meyer stood on that. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, yeah, I, I uh, like what I know of uh, Berger Pearson's work. Okay, again, um, uh, 
Luther says in a different article or chapter in the same book, Pearson mentions that the title Son of Man is used explicitly about Jesus throughout the Nag Hammadi book, The Testimony of Truth. I checked my Nag Hammadi collection and see that the translator of that version and author of the introduction, coincidentally none other than Pearson himself, uh, tentatively ascribes possible authorship to the 3rd century ex-Valentinian Julius Cassius. I'll knock him down and take his crown. Sorry, uh, I understood Gaze of Ramesh in his Jesus the Jew to be saying that Son of Man wasn't really a title at all, but exclusively either just a word for man or a circumlocution. And that the, we were talking about this last time, and that the idea of it as an important title does not have its origins, quote, in Iran or in Judea or even in Ugarit, uh, but in uh, the Canaanites but in the German universities. Um, that's from Jesus the Jew, page 186, um, with uh, Vermesh endorsing a quote of Paul Winter. I don't know if those words are from Winter, I guess so. Do these positions contradict one another? Did some Gnostics use Son of Man as an important title as opposed to the way Vermesh said? Ways Vermesh said? Or am I just taking title too seriously since it's on the brain because I just read Vermesh. Um, I, uh, the way I understand this, and, and, and maybe I'm misrepresenting what these guys are saying, but, and maybe this is just my own synthesis of this, but to me it seems clear that Son of Man in the Gospels is, at least in the synoptics, is not a title for Jesus, as I explained last time. Um, but uh, it looks kind of like the synoptic evangelist thought it was and used it that way at least a few times. Um, and I think in the Gospel of John, uh, it, it's become a title, though it, all it is a title, just, just as in the Gospel of John, Jesus reveals one thing, namely that he is the revealer. Uh, in the same way, when Jesus in John is called the Son of Man, it just has become uh, another a substitute name for Jesus. Uh, and that the, these original distinctives are largely uh, gone. People have forgotten. Though you do still have some when the Son of Man comes type references, even in John. Uh, so that style of apocalyptic speech survived, but it seems that even that is is weakened, that it just is, as I say, a, a, it just a synonym almost for Jesus, an epithet. Um, like when Stan Lee in Marvel Comics would always call himself Smiling Stan. Well, that wouldn't be on his driver's license, and it's not exactly a title, but that's what folks called him. Or uh, Willie Mays, the Sultan of Swat. Uh, and uh, they knew it wasn't his name. Nobody was stupid enough to think that, right? Well, I think a son of man is kind of an epithet for Jesus in the Gospel of John, um, unless there is explicit reference to apocalyptic comings and stuff like in Daniel chapter 7. Um, but uh, in Gnostic texts, 
as I say, it's also kind of lost the apocalyptic connection, but seems like a more cosmic title because, uh, well, even in John, you're dealing with realized eschatology. Don't look for the resurrection in the future. It's happening now as people are awakened by Jesus' teaching. Uh, Don't look for some great revelation of Jesus at the end when every eye shall see him. No, no. Uh, He's come now. This is it. Not going to be a second coming. This is the coming. Uh, That's like uh, the... the, uh, Unless one is born uh, from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, because it's all around you, but you're not interpreting it right. It's Maya, uh, and uh, so it, it so it doesn't have so much the apocalyptic resonance it did in the synoptics sometimes. I think it has even less of that in the Nagamandi text, where uh, where. Uh, a realized eschatology is uh, even more pronounced than in John. And, uh, but they do seem to use it as a title. And as I also think I mentioned the other day, some said that it has an added significance in that um, if Adam, if man were made in the image of God, then he must be just like God. It's almost like cloning God. And if the the first man was named Adam, God must be named Adam or Adamas. And, uh, and, and so they said, if Jesus is the son of God, that means he's the son of Adamas. And hence the son of man. So that was another way of interpreting it. I don't think in the Gospels it's taken that way, but it does seem to be a a genuinely Christological title. It becomes equivalent in some Nag Hammadi text to son of God. Okay, thanks a lot, Luther. And keep on reforming. Oh, let's see. Seamus has a question. He requests my best Harvey Keitel uh, voice, which uh, isn't that good, but I, I think of it. Uh, of course, I've seen him in a lot of flicks, my favorite being The Last Temptation of Christ. You, you're worse than the Romans. They crucify him and you build the crosses. Um, anyway, um, so when it comes to the Trinity, most folks see this as only being an invention of and a major part of the Catholic doctrine, but my understanding is other denominations hold this odd view tight to their dogma as well. Uh, is the claim that this is more of a Catholic device than other faiths fair? Also, was the Trinity simply a claim that this is more of a Catholic device than other... Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm committing a typical scribal error by going back and copying uh, redundantly. Was the, the Trinity simply a plot device to fill in certain gaps, or is there more to the story of Yahweh's two other personalities? Well, um, uh, it is held by, oh, uh, the great, great majority of Christians worldwide, uh, namely Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, um, Apostolic Orthodox, that is the Monophysite churches, the Coptic church, for example, the Armenian church, 
and, and such. They differ on other issues, but they're all Trinitarians. Uh, Protestants, especially the so-called magisterial Reformation churches, Presbyterians, Lutherans, uh, Anglicans, um, reforms, stuff like that. These people didn't go that far from the Roman Catholic Church when they reformed. They still major in liturgy. It's, it's, um, uh, they're, they're more uh, formal than, than the radical Reformation Protestants like Baptists, Anabaptists, uh, Amish, Hutterites, uh, Mennonites, Church of the Brethren, Plymouth Brethren, uh, and then after that, Holiness, Pentecostals, and so forth. But even most of them accept uh, the the Trinity. Uh, there are two paths of departure from that within, or that started within Protestantism. Within Pentecostalism, they're developed very shortly after the whole movement started around the turn of the century, 19th to 20th. Uh, this was oneness Pentecostalism, where um, study of the book of Acts persuaded one group that baptism should be done only in the name of Jesus, because for one thing, in the book of Acts, that's what they did, right? Baptizing them in the name of Jesus and, and so on. Rather than the Trinitarian or the threefold baptism form that you find in, uh, well, I guess all actual surviving manuscripts of Matthew with the Great Commission. Go into all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Eusebius says that there were, in the fourth century, he says that before the Council of Nicaea, there were some manuscripts where, of Matthew 28, where it just said, um, baptizing them in my name, but that after Nicaea, that was all changed. I take that pretty seriously as, as a hint. I mean, we don't have any of the manuscripts because after the change, they stopped copying that older reading. But um, oneness Pentecostals say, yeah, that's the, um, the, the proper formula of baptism. And why does it matter? Well, in a way it doesn't, but in another way it does, because that implies that the name of God or the name of the Lord is simply Jesus. Uh, that there is, there are not three divine persons sharing one nature. They tend to be modalists and say that God through salvation history has revealed himself in three different ways, depending on how he is acting among his people. Uh, in the Old Testament, he was the father. He created the world. He adopted Israel as his chosen people. He was the father. And that still spills over into Christianity because, of course, Jesus is preaching in a Jewish context, right? Um, no matter how far he may have departed from it. Uh, but while the incarnation is going on, Jesus is God incarnate, but he he is the son uh, in, in that very short dispensation of his earthly lifespan. Uh, and since he ascended to heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit on the church, 
he now is active and identifies as the spirit. Uh, if you look closely at some passage in, passages in Acts, it speaks of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus. You know what? what? Well, they're all the same, oneness Pentecostals say. And so as modalists, it's like the um, the old analogy of water, uh, that water has the same chemical makeup, whether it is steam or ice or drinkable water. Uh, so it's, it's the same stuff. It's just in different forms and different conditions. And that's the way it is with God. Most people who use the water analogy don't seem to realize the heretical direction of it. Uh, that, because that is not what Trinitarianism means. Um, and, uh, so how do they explain it? Well, I just explained the predominant way, but this this doctrine is also called dynamic monarchianism, meaning that uh, that there is but one divine monarch, one God, and his name is Jesus. Uh, but the dynamism is that he appears in different ways, uh, and uh, that the Hindu. Tr- uh, uh, Trimurti doctrine is is kind of like that. There is Brahman without qualities beyond all thought, but he uh, is seen by humans through the refractive haze of Maya finitude, and and to them it appears that there are three main deities: Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, and then on a lower level still, loads, hundreds of lesser gods, but it's all a trick of the light. Um, okay, the, the, so that's dynamic monarchianism or modalism, also called Sibelianism, because Sibelius was one of the main teachers of that. Uh, the other route out of Trinitarianism was that of the Unitarians, as you could infer from the name, right? Uh, these guys were radical Reformation era Bible believers. And just as the oneness Pentecostal said, wait a minute, my study of the Bible would not lead me to believe in this Trinity business. Uh, well, same thing with the first Unitarians. They were strict biblical literalists, believe it or not. Of course, they're modern heirs or not, but they were at the time because rationalism was very important to them. Uh, they, they believed in the Bible, but to explain it, well, it had to make sense. Uh, you, you couldn't just leave it as a mystery. Uh, Ethan Allen, uh, one of the great uh, patriot revolutionaries in our country, um, he was much influenced by uh, this rationalist religion, and so he did not believe in the Trinity. And and for this reason, he believed in the, the Christian revelation, but he said, Look, if something is a revelation, wouldn't that mean it would make sense to us? I mean, you, you can't say, oh, yes, God has revealed the Trinity. Well, I'm afraid he hasn't revealed it if we don't know what the heck it means. And nobody does, uh, because the uh, church fathers who hammered out the Trinity over many decades, fine-tuning it, debating it, uh, they uh, they finally said, well, ultimately, it's a mystery. 
we don't understand it and can't understand it. Uh, it's because, see, you know, what do you expect? Uh, it, it, you're dealing with the absolute, infinite, eternal entity. You think you're liable to be able to understand that? I mean, in modern terms, we don't even know what quasars are, right? Uh, we don't know how a light can be a quantum and a uh, wave at, at the same time, right? So why should it surprise us? But um, um, the the uh, Unitarians weren't having any of that. Uh, well, actually, uh, the guy I'm thinking of that said this was Hosea Ballou, who was a universalist, but they got together with the Unitarians because they had much in common. He said, if it's not made clear, it's not been revealed. Uh, that has a certain cogency to it, but... Uh, I'm sympathetic with what Paul Tillich said. No, it's not like a problem to be solved, like a locked room mystery. Uh, when you finally hear the solution, you say, darn, why didn't I think of that? No, it's not like, uh, like Captain Kirk once said that there aren't any mysteries. There are only problems yet to be solved. Well, Tillich said, no, there are some things that go beyond mere reason, and for them to be revealed to us uh, is to bathe in the mystery. It goes beyond what we could understand. I'm, I like them both. I don't know who's right there. But nonetheless, how, how ironic, right? Because the Unitarians today don't give a damn about the Bible and what it says. It's sort of like, can you top this? Uh, it's all just political correctness and so on. Okay, uh, traditional Unitarianism is long gone. Um, but uh, that is certainly a huge dump of information that goes way beyond what you anticipated, I'm quite certain. But there are many of these questions that do not have simple answers, just like they were saying about the Trinity. So uh, if you give a simple answer, you're giving the wrong answer. So thanks, Seamus. Uh, let's see. This is from... Uh-oh, it's one of those things where I'm not sure which goes with which. Well, well, I'm not sure who this is, but it says, Hello, most exalted geek, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, you might be thinking. Well, that just shows how far behind I've gotten in the questions. Anyway, he says, I read the recent, I'm sorry, I read the following article recently. Has the Q source been under our noses all along? Matthew, uh, Luke, and the Didache. You know what that is, right? The late first, early second century church manual from Syria that shows various fascinating fossils about the, the early church. Anyway, to my inexpert eyes, it looked in Intriguing, possible, maybe even plausible. That said, a lot of things look that way to inexpert eyes, which is why it's so important to have trusted experts to turn to. Uh, here's a short web link for any listeners who want to follow up. Um, let's see. Okay, it's HTTP colon slash slash uh, 
tiny URL, that is no spaces, no capitals, T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash Didache, that is D-I-D-A-C-H-E. Like I said, when I ate the whole pizza, uh, my stomach did ache. Okay, then uh, dash capital Q. Um, what is your assessment of the hypothesis that Matthew and Luke both drew independently from the Didache, at least for portions of what scholars would later call Q? Um, uh, let's see. Uh, I uh, don't know enough about it. Last I understood the parallels between Q and the synoptics were not exact enough that I would posit verbal dependence. And there are certainly things that uh, Matthew and Luke didn't buy uh, if they saw them in Q. Now, they both have uh, a version of the Lord's Prayer, and so does, uh, so does the Didache. Uh, they differ from one another, and uh, both with the Didache. But you know, we we have to assume that the Lord's Prayer was was very widely known and used. The the uh, Eucharistic rite is very different. There's nothing about the atoning death of Jesus or the elements being uh, his body and blood, and so some scholars understandably think this is very early before it got as theologized as it did in the Gospels already on their way to transubstantiation. So I'd really have to look this up. I'll, I'll, I'll have to uh, look up the uh, the link you're talking about here. I'm, I, one thing I'm really shamefully slow on is examining alternatives to uh, these uh, source uh, hypotheses. And uh, there are more and more of them all the time. Okay, this is from Left Coast Canuck. Uh, salutations once again to his illustrious geekiness. He says, I return with another question about the intersection of the Bible and science. I've been fascinated uh, for a while with the phenomenon of flat earthers, especially the group of them that has taken hold as a small YouTube cult. It's a real tragedy that apparently thousands of people have been swept up into this nonsense. The unfortunate truth is that science is a very difficult subject for many people. Now, technology like YouTube has allowed a few confident people to convince thousands of others that science is confusing because it's all a gigantic lie. Anyway, let me finally get to my point about the Bible. A subset of these flat earthers are also biblical creationists. It's no secret that creationists have always been at odds with science. But these flat-earth creationists claim that the Bible supports their viewpoint, which is still farther to the fringe. They cite Bible passages about the earth being fixed and immovable. They also cite a biblical idea of a transparent dome or firmament above the earth, separating the waters above from those below. 
I've also seen reference to Daniel 4, 10 through 11, wherein there is an immensely tall tree visible to the farthest reaches of the earth. Right, that couldn't be unless it was all a huge flat plain, right? All of this has me curious, what sort of model of the earth and the broader cosmos would a person construct if one had only the Bible as a description of the world? What is this business about the four corners of the earth and the pillars holding it up? Are these flat earths right about the biblical account of earth's shape? Um, let's see here. Um, are there contradictions or gray areas that make it hard to construct a consistent cosmological model from the Bible? Oh, this is Wade from Indiana. Okay. Uh, uh, actually, the flat earthers are quite accurate in their reading of, of the biblical cosmology. In fact, uh, just about all the ancients we know of thought the same thing. And in fact, uh, it would be amazing if they hadn't, because if you, I mean, if you don't have telescopes and stuff like that, um, what are you going to think? Uh, you, you look around you uh, in every direction, and eventually you can't see anything anymore. It all kind of fades out, but I'm guessing that like the ancients, your first guess is, well, I guess it's just too far away. I, I can't see anything that's not relatively close. So I don't believe it would occur to you that uh, the Earth was round. I mean, bumpy, yes. I mean, there there are higher and lower places in it, but you know that's no. That's just like the surface of an apple pie, right? Um, does is the uh, does the sun orbit the Earth? Well, that's what they say in uh, uh, in uh, Joshua. Uh, is what shape is the uh, the earth? Well, it's round. In Job, it says that God drew a circle on the face of the deep and, and then uh, you know, blew the water off it. Uh, and uh, as in Genesis 1, dry land appeared. And uh, then he... Um, and there was a subterranean ocean under the floating flat disk of the earth and which is why you you have the the oceans and stuff and and why you can dig wells even in the dry land and water will come up and then to keep out the water above there was this firmament which come which is in Hebrew rakia which means uh, a dome uh, beaten out of metal sheets uh, like an astrodome kind of a thing. Uh, and, and it has windows in it because that explains rain. Uh, but it, it keeps out most of the water. But there's gotta be water up there because there's rain, right? And, uh, God's throne is way above that. And uh, there, there are at least three heavens. There's the, uh, the sky, uh, in which the birds fly. 
and then there there's the heaven of stars, and then there's paradise where the righteous live, and and uh, God may be pictured there or on a throne above even that one. And as time passed, they came to believe there were seven of these concentric heavenly spheres, and that the old sages like Enoch and others were taken up. And when Jesus ascended, uh, he uh, he went up almost like a man in an elevator going up on the second floor. Uh, and, uh, oh, let's see, the earth uh, was, I said it was floating, but actually it, it's it's propped up by very huge mountains, which are the pillars of the earth. And they come up around the circumference of the, uh, of, of the, the disc earth. Oh, what else have we got there? Well, but the, the, uh, the whole thing is a result of careful observation of nature and that's why all these ancient uh, people agreed on that you would almost have to be insane not to agree with it until people started coming up with uh, in scientific instrumentation uh, and uh, already Pythagoras and others were beginning to suspect that geez maybe uh, the earth isn't the, the center uh, and uh, Pythagoras I think concluded that the sun is one of the orbiting planets, but all the planets, including the sun and the earth, are orbiting a great central furnace, even bigger and hotter and brighter than the sun. Uh, well, that's wrong, but, you know, fits and starts. And uh, this created problems, uh, as you know, uh, with, uh, with science. But the irony is that, as Wellhausen pointed out long ago, uh, the Genesis 1 description is not given as an ostensible revelation, right? It's not like in the book of Revelation on the other end of the Bible where he says, oh, I was in the uh, trance, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he showed me this. No, uh, it, it just starts in with what happened. How did God make it? Well, in content and form, as Wellhausen pointed out, Genesis 1, the so-called priestly creation account, is simply a piece of ancient, quote, natural philosophy. That is, um, science with, uh, with your brain as the, and your eyes as the only instruments. It was, uh, you know, telescopes and all that stuff much later that enabled people to say, oh my gosh, it's not what we thought. And that didn't uh, go down too easily. Uh, like uh, Martin Luther said about Copernicus, this mad fellow would turn the universe upside down. And they just thought it was absurd. I mean, it would have sounded that way to us too, if that's what we were raised. I mean, we would say, you're kidding. I mean, just look around you. Well, yeah, but you got to look beyond that. And finally, they were able to do it. So yeah, in fact, the flat earthers, as far as I know, are simply a subgroup of creationists. They just dare to see what the Bible actually said. Whereas most creationists, uh, they can't help accepting what astronomy tells us today. Uh, they don't like uh, the notion that we 
are descended from animals. So they, they continue to try to explain that away. Uh, but, um, the, the, but I think it's really the plausibility structure. It's it, they're, they're so used to the idea that the earth is round and that it orbits the sun, et cetera, et cetera, that, uh, they, they just, even they would think it was nutty to a return to medievalism and so forth. Uh, and, uh, but, but they still figure that they, I mean, they would like to believe in literally what the Bible says, but this is too much. So what they do is to, use their imagination perversely to come up with absurd and weird arguments to reinterpret the evidence for evolution. But they scoff at flat earthers, but they're just a notch over on the, the, in the spectrum. Uh, the flat earthers have the guts to say, here's what it says. Here's what I believe. Uh, and uh, of course they're wrong and they do wind up looking foolish. Uh, but that, of course, is one of the big motivations for trying to spread the gospel of the flat earth. So you won't feel like such a nut. Uh, you, you'll have more and more people agreeing with you. But it's it really is. A, and there are even heliocent. I'm sorry, geocentrist creationists, right? That say, oh, no, no, uh, where the earth doesn't move. It certainly doesn't revolve around the sun. No, no, no. The sun revolves around the earth. Why? Because the Bible says so. And you know what kind of wacky arguments flat earthers make, same thing here. So it's just funny, it's like there but for the grace of Darwin and Copernicus go us. Um, ooh, let's see. Uh let's finish up with one from Pope Pizza the Fort the Fort uh Fort. No, the fortieth, that's right. Most people believe that Jesus foresaw his own death. I've been searching the internet, and there doesn't seem to be any passage to that effect before Matthew 16, 21 through 23, that would fit this narrative. Well, actually, oh, I'm sorry, uh, without getting into too many details, uh, my coworker and I were talking about baby Jesus foreseeing his death only if he had somehow gained the ability in the missing years or tripping in the desert with Satan. Ooh, darn it, I'm sorry, I should have read this. If you can do the voice as William Defoe, it would be beautiful. But Harvey Keitel would uh, would would do too, if Judas would like to explain it. Yeah, um... Oh, let's see... Well, the Gospel of Mark does have Jesus predict three or four times that he's going to go to Jerusalem where sinners will beat him up and spit on him and uh, uh, give him hell and uh, crucify him and he'll die and rise again in three days. Uh, and it, uh, And then the other Gospels repeat that, at least Luke and Matthew do. Um, John does have other statements to that effect. He says, when I am lifted up uh, from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Or um, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and all who looked at it were healed, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then it says, he said this to indicate how he was going to die. And those who uh, look to him will be saved. 
Uh, and so there's, uh, uh, there are various statements in there where he, uh, he anticipates and even predicts his own death. And it is so clear that, uh, when, when he does get arrested in Gethsemane, the disciples are flabbergasted as if the idea had never entered their minds. And, uh, now how do you explain that? Well, of course, the, the answer is that all of those, uh, predictions are made by the evangelist, that is the gospel writer, for the benefit of the readers. He doesn't mean that the, uh, the, uh, disciples heard and understood, uh, and because he, he, he can't use a footnote or something, uh, he, uh, there, there's no opportunity for a voiceover as if this were radio or TV, right? Uh, and, uh, so he, he says this almost in the same words three times in Mark and then a couple of other times a little less clearly. Uh, and, uh, they say, oh, what, what, what does he mean? <laughs> you, you idiots, of course, you know, they, they would know, but, um, Mark wants them to be absolutely stunned when it happens. So they flee away, uh, only to regather later, but he wants to assure the reader, look, there's really nothing to worry about here. Uh, yeah, he's going to be killed, but he'll, he'll be back. Uh, and, uh, Matthew does repeat him, so does Luke, and, uh, it, or how about the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, uh, to God, uh, if it is your will, let this cup of, of suffering that pass from me to somebody else. Uh, you can do all things. Nonetheless, uh, I yield to your will. Your will be done. Uh, well, now that's interesting. Uh, oh, it says he was very upset. In fact, he tells the disciples before he goes off privately to pray, says, my soul is sorrowful unto death. Uh, whoa. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's very concerned because he's staring death into the face. Uh, and, uh, and the disciples don't know it because they're not supposed to know it or the story won't go right. But it does appear a bunch of times. Now, what's also interesting, as Muslim students of the Gospels have pointed out, there are also little details indicating that at one point the story read rather differently differently and that Jesus escaped death on the cross like oh, back to Gethsemane the garden uh, when he prays to be delivered from the cross uh, somebody pointed out well, well this is God and Jesus is uh, God not going to answer his prayer uh, tough luck uh, time to you better get moving uh, you got that appointment with the cross uh, no, uh, they say, surely God would answer the prayer, and, and he did. And then when you think of the crucifixion narrative, uh, Jesus is up on the cross, and uh, his opponents are ridiculing him, and they say, let this this Messiah of Israel come down from the cross now, oh, and we'll believe in him. Uh, isn't that like intended as irony, you idiots, that's just what's going to happen. Because how long does it take him to die? 
Well, it seems like he's dead after six hours, which ain't much given the way crucifixion killed people. A slow thing uh, that, that would gradually make you... Uh, die of exposure or asphyxiation or whatever. And when they tell Pilate that Jesus is already dead, he said, what? He already? And they double check and he is, and he gives the uh, body to Joseph of Arimathea. Well, uh, of course, the, uh, you know, they gave Jesus some kind of stuff to drink while he's on the cross to kill the pain. But suppose that simply knocked him out and there wasn't any sign of life, but he was alive. And they took him down off the cross, put him in the tomb of Joseph where he uh, recovered slowly and was seen again. This is not a stupid thing. And there are other hints, too. So it's it's interesting that the Gospels do very clearly anticipate and predict the death of Jesus, but there are little winks to the reader that might imply that they didn't think he actually died. So, you know, it, it really calls for a lot of study, but it's a very fascinating question. Uh, by the way, how would he have known in advance that he had to die? Well, in um, in the last temptation of Christ, speaking of Willem Dafoe and Avi Keitel, um, there's this great scene where he um, the disciples are all asleep except for Judas and Jesus. And Jesus calls him over and says, uh, Judas, I have to tell you about a dream I had. And then you see it as a flashback. And the prophet Isaiah, all veiled and covered in, in a robe, sits down next to Jesus in the dream and unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. And, and he says nothing but points to Isaiah 53, you know, the, the thing, uh, he was bruised for our transgressions and all that. And Jesus nods in understanding. And so he tells, he tells Judas about this. And then he says, uh, well, our plans are changed. Uh, the kingdom of God is coming, but not the way we expected. I'm going to have to die and I need you to pass me on into the hands of my enemies. Uh, and he says, I'm not doing it. And he says, look, you're my closest disciple. I have to have somebody do this, and you're the only one who could. And so, weeping, Judas says, "All right," and and he does turn in Jesus. Oh man, what what a great movie! Uh, and it's based on, of course, uh, the Gospels. And uh, uh, so that implies that Jesus. Actually, this is based on the work of Albert Schweitzer who said Jesus had expected the kingdom of God to come with apocalyptic glory um, when he got into Jerusalem and threw over the money tables and the temple and all that stuff. But zip, nothing happened. And he thought back to how John the Baptist was predicting the coming of the kingdom of God, but he just got arrested and beheaded. Uh, no technicolor apocalypse there either. And he came to the realization, uh, I see it now. I alone am going to have to endure the great tribulation for my uh, brethren here. And, uh, and after that, a few days later, I will rise transfigured as the Son of Man, and then the end will come. 
well, that didn't happen either, but that's what he thought, Schweitzer thought. Uh, and, uh, and then, and he was a buddy of Kazantzakis, who wrote The Last Temptation of Christ. And, uh, and Kazantzakis incorporated that, uh, and so that it was scripture and a dream telling him how to interpret it that, um, informed him of his fate. Others who look at it with more overt supernaturalism assume that Jesus must have known from way back, from childhood, that God had his hand on him and pointing to the cross. But there's there's really... Uh, well, another possibility is that he learned this at the baptism in the Jordan because there are big hints in that story that that looked kind of like a rewritten version of God summoning Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, who's who in some versions of the story died uh, and uh, didn't rise or anything. But in in the canonical version, uh, he uh, he didn't die at the last minute. God sent an angel to tell him, "Hold it, hold it," you know, "You're on candid camera." Uh, and he says, I just wanted to know if you would obey me, but you don't have to now. I, I found out what I need to know. But Jewish theology said it was Isaac's willingness to be sacrificed that uh, atoned for the future sins of Israel. So whether it was his shed blood or his willingness to die, uh, his the, the near sacrifice of Isaac, uh, atoned in advance for the sins of Israel. Well, the, the Jordan baptism is sort of modeled on that. I won't go into all the details as to why. Uh, but uh, if now, you could, if Jesus understood that, you could say that's when he got the big clue. Oh, I see what my mission's going to be about now. But that's pretty iffy. And I kind of like the Kazantzakis uh, Last Temptation version. Well, okay, thou hast a blessed name indeed, Pizza the 40th. I hope to be uh, indulging in some of your sacrament soon and often. Okay, so more next time. Thanks for being with me on this exciting episode of The Bible Geek. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.